You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Uh, our guest today uh, for the podcast, her third time on the show, is Anne Libra, uh, who is an associate professor and coordinates the degree in comedy writing and performance at Columbia College Chicago. She's an artistic consultant and director of comedy studies for the Second City, and that's what this episode is about, the comedy studies program. She served as director of pedagogy for the Second Science Project in partnership with the Center for Decision Research at the University of Chicago. Her directing credits include The Madness of Curious George, Computer Chips and Salsa, The Second City Goes to War, Are You There, God? It's Me, Katniss Everdeen, and Second City Touring Productions All Over the World. Anne has presented on topics in improvisation and comedy for Aspen Ideas Festival, The Code Conference, Chicago Ideas Week, Twitter, and she's guest lectured at Stanford Business School and Northwestern University. Her book, Funnier, A Theory of Comedy with Practical Applications, will be published by Northwestern University Press. And she's my wife. Enjoy the pot. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Libro, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be back. I think this is number three. I think you are in. I think is it the right? Most, yeah, because we did because we did the original one and then we did backable. That's right. And so, so this is three. Yeah, I know. I, I think we're setting records here today. <laughs> so we had Jesse Jesse David Fox on the podcast, as you know, and one of the mm-hmm. things he writes in his latest book, which I don't think you've read yet, right? No, I'm carrying it around in my bag right now. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Jesse. She'll get to it. I, I uh, listen to his podcast all the time, though. So. Yeah, exactly. So he writes in the book, he says, quote, comedy scholars I've spoken to feel they're fighting an uphill battle for legitimacy in academia, end quote. Do you relate? Oh, 100%. <laughs> Talk about that. <laughs> this, is, this, is, you are, this is the story of my life. <laughs> um, I mean, I think... On a very practical level, and I literally just did a lecture about the roots of modern comedy for my comedy history class today. And at a very practical level, comedy has always been seen as a low art form. Um, So it's an art form of the people. It's an art form where we kick people in the butt. Uh Uh, It's an art form where... um, it was always an art form of the poor mm-hmm. and of the baseborn. Um, and as a result, there's a sort of sense that comedians and to, to sort of joke about it aren't really serious and that the only kinds of comedy are the kinds of comedy that no one understands or laughs at. Uh, that idea that because something is popular, 
because it causes you to have an involuntary response like laughter that is really bodily. And as a culture, we tend to think of things that belong to the body, particularly in academia, the things that belong to the body are not as interesting as the things of the mind, right? Yeah. And, and Freud didn't help on this count either, I don't think. No. Uh, I, decades and decades and, and uh, tens of hundreds of years, dozens of years of philosophers who have all said comedians uh, are stupid. Well, and I, <laughs> Comedy, and, Comedy's bad for you. Yeah. And I recall when you were going for tenure and you had to attend these various conferences, you ended up going to <sighs> philosophy I, conferences with just the worst stories afterwards. Well, yes, because because uh, the sort of essence of philosophy, or the early comedy theory and humor theory lives in philosophy because mm-hmm. it goes back to Aristotle. It goes back to some of the to a variety of philosophers. The question was always, why do we laugh? Not why do we have comedy? Mm-hmm. Um, but. As a result, they're not actually interested in making comedy. They're just interested in analyzing comedy, which, as we know, is, while I would say useful, uh, certainly useful to make comedy, uh, isn't necessarily useful to enjoy comedy. Okay, so then you created this, the Comedy Studies program. So yep. let, let's start with what is that? Okay, so Comedy Studies is functionally a semester abroad at Second City. Mm-hmm. Um, it is part of the larger degree program that I run at Columbia College Chicago in comedy writing and performance, but it's open not just to Columbia comedy majors, but to college students uh, and uh, non-traditional students all over the country who are interested in doing really in-depth study in comedy. And it came out of, I was the artistic director for the Second City Training Center. And what I saw was that the people who really succeeded in comedy, both at our theater and elsewhere, where were very specifically people who are writer, director, performers who understood how their work worked across mediums, mm. right? Um, and you think of a Stephen Colbert as somebody who is a writer, director, performer who works across medi- mediums. Uh, Keegan Michael Key. Mm-hmm. Um, that that the the sort of core people, Tina Fey is maybe even a, a better example of that. That this understanding of comedy is not just a thing you write, and not just a thing you perform, and not just a thing that is body, but it's all those things, and that there's sort of unities to comedy is, I think. Not something that we talk about a lot. There's a tendency to think of comedy and comedy creation as magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, oh, those the the funny people over there who make the comedy and they make it and it's just like who they are. And, and in fact, the book that I'm working on is called Funnier because one of the questions I always ask is, can you teach someone how to be funny? And I always say, I don't care. I what I care about is, can I make people who are funny funnier? Hmm. So, yeah. So the idea, though, behind the program was, how do I create something where people who are improvisers are forced to write because they're going to learn something about comedy that's in writing it that's different from improvisation? And that I'm going to make the people who are clowns do improv. And I'm going to make the stand-ups who are good at jokes do, do acting. 
and that all of this is going to allow them to really move forward as comedians. And that the core of the program is what I call comedy cross training. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, good. Uh, no, so it was. I, I, this is a two-part question. So yes. one is, uh, what kind of student is drawn to this program? And that made me think, actually, what kind of parent is drawn to this program on behalf of their college-age kid? Well, Do you have, you. An arch- you have an archetype here? Uh, sure. Well, the, the, the students who come to this program are almost all, whether they are comedy majors or whether they and whether they are from another college, are frequently people who see themselves as comedy sort of being their mission, mm-hmm. but many of them have gotten uh, degrees in history or English or something else that, you know, the, the, so they could be a lawyer later if they needed to be. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a long history of uh, people who become lawyers but actually want to be comedians. <laughs> how how uh, about the parent? Uh, well, no, this is my favorite thing, which is that everyone has a dad who really wanted to be a comedian. <laughs> My fa- my favorite was, uh, I think, two semesters ago, uh, one of the students brought her dad, who actually had gone to Harvard and was friends with a lot of the like sort of Harvard Lampoon guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were doing, we do a, an assignment where I have the students pitch an original episode of I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, sort of playing with how do you use those sort of classic comedy structures, and about halfway through, and we do a sort of uh, faux writers room where they pitch their idea, and then everyone jumps in with ideas, just like you would do in a comedy writers room. And at a certain point, the dad just like raised his hand and said, "I have some thoughts." <laughs> what were his thoughts? And I play. I know he had great ideas. He was okay. he he understood the structure and it was clear that he was somebody and I think a lot of our students have this dad. In fact, I always think I should do comedy studies just for dads. I'll do like like two oh, weeks that comedy would, studies for dads. That, you should do that intensive. That's a great idea. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> um uh but that but a lot of my students have a parent uh, and not always a dad, sometimes it was mom too, who loves comedy and sort of taught them early that comedy was something that had value and, uh, and that was part of their shared culture. You know, in the same way that I uh, made our son watch all the comedy movies with me. Right, 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 right. Which gave him a, I mean, between that and The Simpsons, gave him a kind of liter- a, a really skewed but powerful literacy yes. about all kinds of things. I actually just wrote down, just you know, comedy studies for dads boot camp because we <laughs> we will be pursuing this idea. Okay. Uh, I was I was research I was researching you for the program. There's so many <laughs> things about me you don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I you're very quotable, uh, which mm-hmm. I, I'm not surprised. Uh, there was this article from Best Colleges uh, where you t- you talk about not caring about an applicant's funny quotient at the outset. You say a quote, I care that they have a passion for this. I care that they're willing to do the work. I also know from my years as a teacher at the Second City that it's not not always the most brilliant person on day one who ends up having the career, end quote. So talk more about that and maybe some examples. Uh, Well, so a lot of this is just has to do with the fact that comedy requires a willingness to fail Mm -hmm. and a willingness, you know, Colbert, I think, said you got to learn to love the bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what we do here at Second City on our resident stages in the improv sets. Uh, and that over and over and over again, what I've seen are students who come in 
and they want to do this work, um, but they're not maybe nat- quote unquote naturally funny. But what they really are willing to do is they're willing to keep writing jokes, keep trying those jokes out in front of an audience. They're willing to keep finding characters and playing with those characters and seeing what those characters do. And for me, that's really um, the thing that is finding what is funny about you, finding what about you connects with your audience. I think of um, uh, one of my students that I'm very proud of. Actually, I've got two students uh, who both just started on SNL. Uh, Molly Carney, who is the first uh, non-binary performer in SNL, and Asha Ward, who is a graduate of the comedy major and is a stand-up and a writer. And one of the things I think about Asha in particular, who's incredibly deadpan, um, everything that comes out comes out slowly mm-hmm. and and very specifically, and part of what made Asha so interesting to watch over time was to see her know that she had a funny brain, but do the work because she's not flashy. She's got this sort of deadpan demeanor that she's willing to do the work to find where the comedy is in the thing, right? And that, in many ways, that's the goal for comedians in this industry because you have to keep putting material out. You have to keep making it and you have to keep discovering, again, what's the intersection between your brain and what's funny in your brain and what's funny in the brain of the audience. I think it was pretty cool last summer. If you recall, we we went and saw uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler when they were doing their tour. And I, I don't think Molly was announced. And then she... No, opened, she opened for them. She opened for them, which was... To, yeah, well, how cool is that? Uh, all right, t- talk about... Let's talk... We were talking about alumni of the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kit, all right, how long has the program been going? Uh, we did our first semester in 2007. All right, do you remember folks from that class? Uh... For that era, the, the uh, for the, certainly years. for that era. Well, I mean, you know, some of some of my favorite humans, uh, Chelsea Devantes, who was there in 2011, um, who uh, has who has a new book coming out and has her own podcast uh, called Glamorous Trash. But she was the head writer for uh, John Stewart's uh, The Problem with John Stewart. Um, C.J. Toledano, who is an amazing stand-up. Uh, but is also uh, does a lot of sports podcast stuff now. Um, and the husband of Megan Gailey. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, part of what's, what's uh, you know, exciting to me too, is how many uh, former comedy studies uh, students are working. Um, uh, the, the brothers whose names I just, just ran out of my head who wrote, uh, Justin and Jordan Shipley, who uh-huh. created the television show Wrecked on TBS are, uh, alums of the program. Um, I- so we've got people working in a variety of places as stand-ups, as, uh, television writers, uh, many who have come and we've got so many comedy studies alums who are working in our companies right now here at Second City too. Uh, A.D. Bryant would be a big name. Uh, oh, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's not leave that out. <laughs> she was an early. She was She was in. Uh, she might have been the first or second. Uh, yeah. I think the third. Okay. Um, but, but, and again, it's really interesting 
to go back to this idea of these are all people who were clearly very funny when they first started. Um, uh, but it was doing the work. Oh, uh, Ashley Leaston, who is both a, uh, internet comic and Andy Ryle, who's just astonishingly funny, but also very dark. Uh, but Ashley, who's in our New York company in the second city, New York company, that's about to open a show, uh, who did the summer version of comedy studies had never done comedy before sent an email. She was a dancer mm. uh, and she had gotten injured. And she said, I don't, I've never done comedy, but I think I might be good at it. Mm. And literally two weeks in where she'd been improvising and writing and doing all this stuff. And uh, we all looked up and went, Oh yeah. Yeah. You should be doing <laughs> You're really good at it. You should be doing this. Yeah. 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 Do you have a favorite class that you teach? I have a bunch of favorite classes. You know, the, the, I mean, I teach in the comedy studies program. I teach history and analysis of modern American comedy. But the thing about it and the thing that I love about it is that I'm not just lecturing about comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's a series of active assignments that I have them do, um, where we talk about, cause one of the things about comedy, of course, is that it's not only a popular medium, but it's a medium about commerce, right? Mm-hmm. You have to create something for an industry. Because mm-hmm. it's about making it's about making the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my favorite assignments is the vaudeville assignment. So we uh, talk about vaudeville. We talk about the fact that they had to do acts that were really skill based to really get an audience's attention. Um, that they were in competition with each other. And, th- and I then so we sort of look at some vaudeville acts. We talk about that vaudeville space, and then I say, okay, great. You're going to come back and you're going to create your own version of a vaudeville act. Hmm. And it can be in period. You know, you can pretend it's 1910 or it can be modern. Uh, but you want to think about what are the things that are going to grab an audience's attention? What are the things that are going to make us uh, uh, laugh partially because it's just so cool? Yeah, okay. Examples. Uh, well, one of my favorite early examples, can I swear? Uh, you'll get bleeped, but yeah. Okay. Uh, 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 so one of my favorite examples is, uh, there was this dude who sat in the back of the class and, and, uh, wore, you know, like torn jeans and whatever. Uh, and, uh, he cut, we come in on vaudeville day and there's a bunch of students who are, you know, dressed up as though it's 1910 and somebody's doing a human ventriloquist dummy. And, uh, and he's still wearing his regular clothes with a t-shirt and jeans and he gets up on stage, puts up like four chairs in a row and then looks up and says, uh, I'm just going to jump over some. Um, and by the way, you would not be allowed to use that word in vaudeville. Vaudeville had to be clean. Uh, but he then proceeded, he could jump from standing over four chairs. <laughs> and it was so stunning and it was so surprising and it was so novel. And the the fact that he hadn't dressed up was part of what made it so much fun. Uh-huh. Uh, and and for me, that's, that's the game. I also had uh, a, just a couple of terms ago, we had... Uh, Two students, one of whom was was something was something of a little person, and they did an act where he sat on someone else's shoulders, and they both played banjos. 
And again, it was just... It's so dumb. It's so dumb, but they were so good at it. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. And again, it just gives you this understanding of what a thrill it is to see somebody do some, you know, like Steve Martin. You know, yeah, you, sure. and you make those connections back to uh, Steve Martin or Andy Kaufman, who who lip sync to records, right? That's vaudeville, and it's what it's a kind of enjoyment of something purely skill based that's just lovely. What was the Forks one? Oh, um, and apparently this is uh, pretty easy to do. Okay, um, but uh, they all they had an apple, mm-hmm. and then. There were three people and they each had forks and they would throw the apple and attempt to catch it on a fork. And once the apple caught on the fork, it stayed with the apple. So then they would throw the apple and the the fork would come with the apple. And eventually the apple was covered in forks, (laughs) like some kind of bizarre satellite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It seemed like it was something that was very difficult to do. And they said later that it actually was not. Oh, oh, my other favorite one. Uh, Can I share one more? Yeah. These two guys. Uh, they they played sort of like walk-on music, like for a walk-on music, like for a, a baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they came out, both of them were wearing orange jumpsuits. And one of them had sort of big fluffy hair. Uh, they had a bucket of soapy water, a bucket of plain water, and a can of Coke. They poured the can of Coke on the floor of the stage. Every stage manager at Second City right now is, 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 is breaking out into hives. Yes, they hate they hate me because I like to get messy. <laughs> but then the guy with the fluffy hair did a mm-hmm. handstand, and the other guy's a big guy, picked him up by the feet, dunked his hair in the soapy water, and proceeded to use him like a mop <laughs> to wash the floor of the stage, <laughs> and then rinsed his hair in the wa- clear water and rinsed the stage. I, I can't, I can't, were people just losing their minds? In the oh, class yeah. This? Well, and they did it with, and again, this is part of the, the joy of this. There's a level of understanding that comedy requires a kind of gameplay with the audience and a willingness to get out there and do something really dumb and easy but with real conviction and power mm-hmm. and that that was what they were doing. They took this this gag and then just played it to the hilt. Love it. So when I when I talk about your work, which which I do often, <laughs> whether you like it or not, I know. Um, it's it's out of love. Uh, I talk about the fact that you are very interested in comedy ethics, mm-hmm. and everyone perks up. Some people are like, "Well, what is that?" Uh, and other people are like, "Say more." So when when you're when when you talk about comedy ethics, t- tell us how you talk about it and what it means to you. I mean, to uh, back up a little bit, and one of the things uh, that when I think of comedy, I have a theory of comedy that when we create comedy, we're using three elements, and one of those elements is recognition, but one of those elements is pain. And all comedy contains some level of pain. And then you create some level of psychological distance in your audience to mitigate that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that what people find funny is relative. And that for some people, you're using pain that they will never have psychological distance on. Mm-hmm. 
right? And that, and and there's sort of a set of things that are most likely to cause people uh, to either be offended or upset, right? And offense, and it's hard to tell sometimes whether offense is happening at the listener's ear or the speaker's mouth. You can at- intend to offend someone, but you can also offend someone unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about what do people feel is sacred what do people feel is too painful and then as a comedian you start to make choices about things like did i do something that was painful but did i pay it off do i care about you know a comedy ethic you can have an ethical code that says as long as they laugh i don't care if someone's upset Mm-hmm. Right. I, one of the things I really want my students for me, what I want my students to do is to be intentional about it, mm-hmm. that you're not just going out on stage and making your audience mad, um, but you're deciding why you're making your audience mad, if you're making your audience mad and what you choose to do with that. And there's a great uh, George Carlin quote where he says, uh, I like to push people's buttons. I find out where they draw the line deliberately step across it. And it's interesting because go back to that philosophy conference that I was at, a lot of them use that quote, but they only use that much. Uh They just said, I like to, this is what George Carlin says. He likes to push people's buttons. And what I love when I think about comedy ethics is the second half of that quote, which he says, the first part is I find out where they draw the line, deliberately step across it take them with me and make them glad they came. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is a great explication of a certain kind of comedy ethics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's not everybody's. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I can create comedy that's only for a certain set of people that's going to make other people uncomfortable. And that could also be a kind of ethical comedy. But again, my goal for my students is that they are conscious of the choices that they're making and understand that comedy contains pain that might have uh, a response in their audience that is different than they what they intend. So building on that, there's two two areas I want to kind of mm-hmm. this probably finish up on these, but they're they're the things that you and I get called and interviewed on all the time in sort of contemporary comedy. And one is uh, the Hassan Minaj story. So uh, Hassan Minaj got, uh, had a feature on him in the New Yorker and the uh, reporter uh, really took him to task because she felt that he was telling untruths uh, in his comedy and other people react to that like, well, it's it's not, you know, he's not doing reality TV, you know, he, he's doing comedy. Uh, but she felt, because, especially because he hosted a quasi-comedic news show, right. that the stories were very personal and involved in some cases, claiming someone act racist in a manner when maybe they didn't. So where, do you, where did you fall in terms of, of that when you were sort of asked to comment on it? Well, when we're creating comedy, we're mining our own, oftentimes mining our own experience, but we're also, we also sort of have an agreement with the audience that this is also a joke. And, and to quote 
someone who's also problematic, Louis C.K., he had a joke where he would start with, you know, the other day I went into a bar. It doesn't matter which one because I'm lying. Yeah. Right. There's There's an understanding between us that what I'm creating within my comedy is an extension or a version of my life, but it's not all truth. Right, mm-hmm. which is why when I talk about comedy, I talk about comedy re- being recognition. It's not really truth. Yeah. But there's a difference between that. And I don't think the, the issue is, I don't think Hassan Minaj was presenting it as comedic. He wasn't looking for a comedic response. He was looking for an outrage response and he was presenting it as reportage. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and I do think there's a there's a there's a fundamental difference that we all understand in the same way that um you know they they uh they know that monkeys laugh because they make noises and sort of display their teeth uh in a way that shows that they're play fighting. Mm. Okay. I think there is a fundamental agreement around um, I'm making a fake plaything that is comedy, and he violated that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He because he wasn't because it because he he sort of he flipped it right. He made it. Be, he took something that made people not laugh. Mm-hmm. Right. He wasn't making comedy. He was making people angry. He was making people sad for him. Yeah. Um, and he didn't make it clear that it was comedy. He made it clear. He made it clear that it was something else. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that we always get asked about is uh, how audiences are so easily offended now and you can't Jerry Seinfeld mm-hmm. like, like won't tour colleges because they can't take a joke and you can't do it. So I, I mean, I think this is a complete BS. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I, like, I, I, know, I know you do too, but talk, talk a bit from your perspective about that, that particular trope. Well, so on a very practical level, I think there's, there's something to understand is that at one point, in the 1960s and early 1970s, mm-hmm. colleges were a place where comedians could go and do offensive material mm-hmm. because, because of the way the world had changed. College students wanted something that was boundary breaking. So again, we're talking about the, again, the late 60s, early 70s. Mother's um, Brothers. Mother's Brothers. So, 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 yeah. And, and Carlin is maybe a good example of a guy who wasn't able to play regular comedy clubs because he was seen as political and offensive. Mm-hmm. And then he could go play colleges. Yep. This assumes that college students are there for the comedians as opposed <laughs> to the comedians being there for the college students. Fair point. And, and times change. Well, no. And, and again, comedy is relative. Mm-hmm. So in a period of time in the late 1960s where college students were rebelling against a straight-laced status quo, comedy that was edgy and dangerous felt very funny. Mm -hmm. 
in a for a group of college students who have had so many punches at them over the course of the last 10 years with the Trump administration, with the pandemic, with all these other sort of traumas. Student loan debt. Student loan debt. They're they're not looking for boundary breakers. They're looking for something different. And, And again, the biggest thing we have to remember is that comedy is based on what is recognizable and painful to you and what you have distance on. And for those college students, it's very different. Yeah. Okay. So before we ask you for a thank you because story, which is what we always do for people who return and have already given us their yes and story, how can people uh, find out about the Comedy Studies program? How do they sign up? What what what, what happens? Great. Uh, comedy Studies, go to www.comedystudies.com. Uh, there are links there to the application. You don't have to. It is a college program, and so there's tuition connected to it, but you do not have to be a college student. We have people take this post-college college or, um, you know, what we call uh, adult students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's also, there's a college credit offered from Columbia College Chicago. Uh, so if you are a student at another university, you can basically use it as your semester abroad. And we've had students from all over the country and even the world. Is it still just juniors and seniors or is it? No, you can, uh, um, uh, there. It, you have to have a set of prerequisites, mm-hmm. um, and there's a variety of ways that you could do that. You have to have some previous improvisation experience or some previous writing experience. Um, so most of our students are uh, junior level and above because of the prerequisites. Okay, great. Uh, all right, do you have a thank you because story for us? Look, can I can I use an actual from when we were creating the thank you because? <laughs> I, I, I actually was hoping you would. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so tell uh, people, tell people so, to yes. check that out. So, so uh, I was the director of improv pedagogy for the Second Science Project, which was a partnership between Second City and the University of Chicago School for Decision Research. And we created exercises based on uh, that, that used improvisation to teach the insights of behavioral science. Uh, as well as uh, also actually created uh, ways to test behavioral science hypotheses using improvisation. So it was, it was both and. Um, and we were developing the the exercise that became uh, Thank You Because. Uh, and we were sort of looking for ways to have conversations that, that did not involve yes and. So where you are actually allowed to still be in conflict and we we were looking at nick epley's gratitude research and so that's sort of where the thank you because came really from heather caruso who is the the our our primary behavioral science worker on that on on that work uh she's not a worker she's our she's she's a a knowledge uh scholar Mm -hmm. uh but um as we were developing it, we would test it with a variety of groups. We, would, we literally had labs where we would have people come in and we'd try various versions of the exercise. And a number of people would say, well, they, 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 they felt like they were making fun of the other person, that thank you because felt uh, too silly or too easy. Um, and there was a point when working on the the exercise that we were talking about it and uh, sort of talking about actually getting rid of the phrase 
and uh-huh. and maybe this wasn't this wasn't working. Um, and then about a week later, we were having an argument about something else, and recognized that we were using the technique on each other. We were literally saying, "Thank you because thank you because." in order to get our way in this argument that was about something else. And that was the moment we went, oh, maybe there's something here. This is a thank you because story about thank you because. This is a meta way to end the podcast. Uh, Ann Libra, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Getting the Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive